A medical mystery that has perplexed researchers and doctors for the past two years, long COVID. Oh man, it sure has. As many as four million people are likely out of work due to long COVID. According to one study, long COVID could cost the U.S. $3.7 trillion. Like, why would you want to keep an employee that all of a sudden can only do a fraction of what they could do before? To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Artie, Abby, and I are going to be talking about long COVID, specifically how long COVID is often minimized or stigmatized in the media. And to set the stage for that, I think it's important to mention where we're at right now in the pandemic. As we enter our third COVID winter, the pandemic has been almost entirely normalized. White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Ashish Jha even said this week, quote, We are now at a point where I believe if you're up to date on your vaccines, you have access to treatments. There really should be no restrictions on people's activities. I'm pretty much living life the way I was living in 2019. Uh, It's worth noting that he said this at a stat summit in Boston. So this wasn't a stray comment to a reporter. This was a public statement at an event. Um, Meanwhile, the U.S. is still seeing 300 COVID deaths a day by the official count. So even if daily deaths did not increase, that's still a rate of roughly 109,000 deaths per year, which is hardly a resolved public health crisis. Despite this, perhaps to celebrate the midterm election results, the Senate voted this week on exactly that. On Tuesday, the Senate voted 62 to 32 in favor of ending the official declaration of COVID-19 as a federal emergency, And this includes 13 Democrats who voted yes, including perhaps appropriately for this episode, Senator Tim Kaine, who himself has long COVID. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Tim Kaine in the membrane. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And obviously it's unclear what's going to happen from here, you know, as that vote goes to the House next. But the consequences, if it ultimately happens, are quite real. When the emergency declaration ends, a lot of people are going to lose coverage under Medicaid and other social welfare programs are going to be effectively cut. And beyond that, the pandemic funding that we've heard all year has been held up by Republicans. Um, I think that these 13 Democrat votes really call that whole line into question. And I think that gives us some important grounding going into this because deaths, even 100,000 or more of them each year, are not the only consequence of the pandemic. And when it's other consequences, like long COVID, for example, are cast aside or downplayed in the social reproductive imaginary, the way that we'll be talking about today... It certainly does a lot to aid the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that gets us to our our topic for today. Um, today, we wanted to talk, as B mentioned, about long COVID, not long COVID so much itself, but how we talk about 
long COVID. And to be more specific, how the way long COVID is talked about in the media can often troublingly reinforce things like what we frankly talk about all the time on the show, um, the economic valuation of life, Mm -hmm. um, or in other cases like internalized ableism or what is called lateral ableism, um, which we'll probably uh, get into at some point. Um, Now, as part of this, we're also, of course, going to be talking about the different ways media accounts have downplayed long COVID itself. Um, Not so much the people saying, like, this isn't real, but the more commonplace stuff, like when people draw into question how pervasive long COVID really is by saying things like, oh, you know, X amount of people with long COVID didn't even have an existing positive COVID test or You know, especially when experts are cited whose interest seems to be in narrowing diagnostic criteria for what counts as long COVID and what doesn't. Um, So I want to take a quick second, I think, to be very clear about the parameters of this discussion, though. Um, Yeah, I think that's a good idea. um, First, I want to be really clear. This is not a conversation about proving long COVID exists. It exists. Um, This conversation is going to just proceed with that as a given. And second is this is not a conversation about chances of getting long COVID, any clinical stuff. Uh, We're not going to be talking about how much more likely you are to get long COVID with subsequent reinfection or anything like that. This is not a medical advice show, you know. With all that said, though, here are, I think, the three main framings we're going to be considering today. And then we're going to go kind of one by one through them. Um, The first is long COVID as primarily an economic productivity frame mm-hmm. um, like the privileging of long covid as a sort of statistical workforce issue and this one's so common yeah the second one will be what i'm going to call long covid as a spoiled identity in other words framing long covid as a sort of tragedy befalling the otherwise intrinsically healthy and the third will be uh, something i kind of mentioned already casting doubt on long covid by suggesting diagnostic criteria need to be narrowed we have a very good example of this uh coming but i'll call this the um just asking questions <laughs> um so um if you if you guys are good with it should we just jump into the tropes yeah i think we yeah, should absolutely. okay cool um so let's let's start with the first one the economic framing which i called uh pr- the privileging of covid as a statistical workforce issue that's a really good way to frame it actually yeah um this one i think is interesting and and relevant because of this i think as recently as last year it was much more common to see experts both medical and economic uh, cast doubt on whether long COVID even exists. They don't really overtly do that quite as much anymore. Um, overtly is the key word there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, and really I think starting with this year, 2022, we've seen a lot more kind of staid professionals and institutions at least try to embrace long COVID as an extant force in the world. Um, my favorite example of which being the Brookings institution, which has done <laughs> some work on long COVID, um, over the last year or so. Because when a conservative think tank like Brookings gets involved, you know that economic interests are, you know, looking at this very closely and attempting <laughs> to take it seriously, even if on their own terms. Look, this is economic endemicity, which as that <laughs> left my mouth, I'm realizing that was McKinsey and not the Brookings Institution. Oh, sorry. Same same difference, really. <laughs> um but yeah, so so when I reference that uh, Brookings thing, what I'm talking about is this report that went out uh, in August from them that went around a lot. Here's a title of a blog post from Brookings itself that was announcing it. Uh, quote, new data shows COVID is keeping as many as 4 million people out of work. And this was specifically naming long COVID as, uh, as, as part of that thing, keeping people out of work. So 
you know, I remember this made a lot of waves when it was released. We even talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this kind of perfectly cues up our first trope, uh, especially because some of the media accounts that I'll reference cite this Brookings study itself. Um, the, the trope goes something like this. It is asserted as self-evident that a disabled worker or a worker with long COVID is less productive, uh, that because they are less productive, they are not a valuable worker. The amount of excess value, I presume, that can be derived from their labor, I guess, is lessened, is the idea, if you want to be all, you know, materialist about it or whatever. (laughs) Um, And therefore, long COVID is an issue by some media framings because too many people will become unproductive and a disabled worker is, again, apparently that self-evidently bad thing. So to specify what I'm, what I'm talking about here, um, I'm sure everyone's seen a few things like the following headlines. Here's a headline from Fast Company, uh, quote, long COVID's devastating effects on your workers' productivity. Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Um, to be fair, this headline, I'm not sure if this is just A-B testing or they changed the headline, but it still reads this as the the like result in Google. That, that's the that's like one of the versions of the headline. If you currently load it, it says like long COVID is still draining many workers. Here's how it affects productivity. So they like made it a little more neutral, but you know, um, NPR long COVID is sidelining millions of workers from their jobs. Washington post long COVID is destroying careers, leaving economic distress in its wake. And then Reuters with the ever present disability as suffering framing three quarters of UK long COVID sufferers working less according to survey. So this is a small sampling of course, but you get the picture. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear from the top, of course, you know, long COVID can and often does make it difficult or sometimes impossible for people to work. The thing that's important to stress is we're not arguing with that. What we're arguing with and going to be drawing attention to is to see how common it is by far to see long COVID discussed as this workforce issue that should be getting addressed specifically to get people back to work, this Mm -hmm. sort of like rehabilitative model. Yeah. Right. The the problem is located obviously both in the individual using this framing, right? Like it places it as a kind of individual failing of 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 a demographic of workers that can be sort of like sought out for having this identity of long covid and being a potential threat to the overall productivity of the quote-unquote workplace. But it's also one that really takes the kind of humanity out of experiencing chronic illness and just puts it completely to the side. Like, you know, fuck the experience of your symptoms, like fuck the fact that like you were probably exposed to COVID without any consent or downstream of policies from your government or your employer specifically, rather actually both. And, you know, the real problem here is that, you know, overall productivity is going to be threatened or GDP could not increase precipitously as it's supposed to. And it could stay flat. Like, God forbid, that would be worse than the individual sort of suffering that people are feeling. So it's it's one of those like really tricking framings that both blames people and like minimizes their experience of the illness itself in one gesture. Yeah, I think I mean, as you said, Artie, acknowledging that at the individual level, long COVID can make it difficult to work, which can have, you know, catastrophic consequences for someone's sort of financial stability. Acknowledging that that is true, I think 
really like all of the examples that you've just read through are like data points in support of the thesis of your book, right? Like this really, really <laughs> tight intercalation between our notion of what health is and our notion of what productivity or the capacity to work is, you know, we live in, I'm sorry to like, sound like such a, <laughs> I feel like I sound like such a bozo saying stuff like this, but like, <laughs> you know, we live in a capitalist political economy um, and that deeply affects like how, you know, healthcare is administered, how like the science underpinning, you know, healthcare treatments and, and whatever, how that's conducted. And I think it really deeply affects how we understand health. And I feel like this, the examples that you've just noted and this whole kind of, you know, media framework of talking about long COVID as really a crisis of, you know, workforce participation just kind of brings that that to the surface, right? Like how mm -hmm. tightly coupled notions of health and notions of productivity, specific kinds of productivity at like specific kinds of wage work really are. Yeah, no, I mean, that's such a great point, Abby. And I think one of the things too, that's also important is that, you know, part of the reason why we do think of disability this way or why, you know, culturally it's a signal of attention to disability or that there's a presence of disability to document uh, like a, a noticeable, you know, depletion of productivity as some sort of proof of disability, right? Like mm -hmm. part of the reason why we think of things that way is not necessarily because people hate disabled people, right? Like though many do. <laughs> um, it's also because we've pre-limited ourselves through political economy to only recognize and only think of disability this way through the lens of the state. Yeah. So, you know, for the for the example that I use often on this show, um, Social Security Disability Insurance or SSDI in the United States, what qualifies you as having a uh, impairment that would qualify you for being eligible for SSDI benefits is not necessarily based on the severity of your symptoms, but how much those symptoms limit your capacity to be a productive worker. And so and then the benefits after that are also tied directly to your past workforce participation. Mm -hmm. And if you have not participated enough, it can itself disqualify you from receiving SSDI. Right. And the thing, too, is that, you know, when we talk about some of the problems and limitations of SSDI, especially at the sort of research level or the federal level, what you're going to hear people say is, oh, well, one of the problems with SSDI is that because it ties Medicare into um, SSDI eligibility and people who get SSI supplemental security income, which is like for people who haven't earned enough work credits or who are below a certain poverty line to qualify for dual enrollment, essentially, you know, because the way that we sort of think about essentially the the issue of someone um, having their income restricted being sort of restricted for work by the very classification that they've been certified disabled on the condition that they cannot work, right? But if they start to work, they'll lose their Medicare. This sort of like catch-22 is talked about as a disincentive to work that exists as part of the structural benefits of the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. So basically, the way that a lot of researchers and lawmakers and just general people think about the kind of relationship of work to SSDI is through the lens of like thinking about malingering and fakers and verifiability and what's real and what's not real being really sort of beyond the individual's experience, but about, you know, is that person, uh, quote unquote, incentivized to work? 
Are they not incentivized to work? Are they being prohibited from working? And so it sets up these preconditions where the only way that we think about and understand a quote unquote valid disabled person in the United States becomes predicated on this condition of like, are they a worker? Are they not a worker? How much does it interfere with their work? How much money are they losing? How poor are they as a result of this? Yeah. And this relates to something that Abby was mentioning that we talk about in our book, Health Communism, as the worker surplus binary. Um, But to um, to get back to some of these uh, specific media examples, um, I want to take a close look, for example, at one of these pieces of coverage in particular, which is that Fast Company article that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, This is from August of this year. This is the one that, as I was saying, was originally titled um, Long COVID's Devastating Effects on Your Workers' Productivity. (laughs) So, for example, I'll I'll just read a little bit of this, but um, under a heading reading Functioning and Productivity, it says, um, quote, most people who contract COVID-19 return to work at full capacity within a week or two. However, those experiencing severe long haul symptoms may have functional impairments that affect productivity. What to do about this, it says under a heading, employer considerations. And this, I think, as I read this, I think it's important that, you know, both of you have, have talked about how how deeply healthcare or our ability to like receive any kind of, you know, social or health supports in this country is tied to employment in one way or another, whether it's as B was talking about through the very, you know, validation criteria or certification criteria for welfare programs or whether it's for you know the obvious example of needing to have a fucking job to have your to have health insurance in this country so um keep that in mind as i as i read this um advice that they have for employers i'm just bracing myself um, emotionally <laughs> quote, employers must ensure their work environments offer a supportive culture in which self-care and benefits utilization are encouraged <laughs> not frowned upon or viewed as a weakness or liability the best chance employees have of achieving maximum recovery and (laughs) resuming full productivity is under the care of high quality medical providers who specialize in the issues most profoundly affecting them cardiology neurology pulmonology etc these experts are often based at major teaching hospitals and medical facilities they should be well versed in the literature on long covid and take patients concerns seriously should Um, doing a lot of work yeah all of this is a big should yeah exactly with a big asterisk that says subject to the provider network of your individual workplace plan finishing with quote organizations caring for those most adversely affected by long covid will go a long way in helping them resume full productive lives Uh, hmm, Uh, i mean will they though like well, the the uh, work tied to I mean, the, the line drawn directly from work to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like interesting to me listening to you read through all of this that. <laughs> well, for one thing, I mean, this like fast company article sounds very um, chipper and has a lot of trust, you know, that like yes. <laughs> the right kind of combination of, you know, expertise and like health services and you know, spontaneous, like self-organization, it'll, it'll all be fine. You know, like we just have to hold on and like, it'll, it'll all be fine. It'll all be resolved. Like these people will be restored, you know, to their pre COVID levels of productivity. And that reclaimed um, for the industrial army. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Human waste made productive again. (laughs) So that's kind of dust. (laughs) Interesting because it doesn't, 
um, seem to really engage at all. And I mean, it's like a fast company article. So, you know, my expectations of it aren't that high, but it doesn't really engage with like what the realities are. But then the other thing that's interesting to me about this is, okay, this is, (laughs) this is like a, a complicated thought that might turn out to be like worthless, but um, it's interesting because the workforce impacts of long COVID, or I mean, I guess just of COVID in general, are the one thing that really like can't be hidden and can't be ignored. Um, You know, I feel like at the level of individual pathophysiology, you know, like the, the, the media machine is kind of working overtime to, you know, either implant like fear about, you know, becoming disabled, which is like a fate worse than death, you know, to listen to some of these media accounts or to, you know, as, as you said at the top of the show, like to cast doubt on, you know, whether long COVID is even something real, but at the level of like, you know, a a mass disabling event that is taking people out of the workforce that can't be hidden and it can't be ignored. And like, that has to be reckoned with. And I feel like that is the context that things like this fast company article come straight out of. And I think that's an important reason for us to be doing this because I think you, I think that's why, you know, I mentioned the Brookings thing, for example, it's like after a certain point, they can't ignore it anymore. They have to start reintegrating it into like the, you know, they have to integrate it into their worldview, which already, you know, is so predicated on, again, Mm -hmm. as we like write in our book is so predicated on this idea of like, you know, the abject surplus versus the productive member of society. Right. And so I think like trying to intervene in how these things are are then talked about before it's totally integrated, um, not to not to say that it's not substantial. Part of what we're talking about is it's already these frames are already <laughs> so substantially integrated because of the incredibly fucked up way that we already talked about illness and disability in mm-hmm. our society. But and we'll get into that a little more during the spoiled identity section. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like a predictable unfolding from sort of popular narratives of like illness and disability and like recovery and non-recovery. Absolutely. And I, I think the thing too, that, you know, as you were saying, Abby, I want to push back on one thing. You said that like long COVID is a problem that can't be ignored um, in some capacity. And I think in some ways it absolutely is, but in other ways, because of the ways that we count disability and actually don't count disability in so many different modes of data collection, a really good way to hide long COVID is the fact that data wise, we ignore opportunities to collect information on disabled people. So like we don't have a standard definition of what disability means that's used across all governments. Each individual department of the federal government has their own definition and each state has their own definition and departments within departments have their own working definitions because for different purposes you have very different definitions of disability that are in use like for example the definition of disability for ssdi not being able to work anymore is different from the definition of disability for the americans with disabilities act which is able to work if accommodated reasonably right and so you have these really important sort of moments where, you know, both disability is expansive, it's collapsed, it's ignored, it's highlighted, all essentially towards this argument, right, of disability being mostly a threat in the context of workforce productivity. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought up the accommodations thing, because this gets exactly into 
um abby i think you mentioned like oh well of course like fast company would say this right and you're right it's like a bit where i'm i'm citing a business press thing in part because they're gonna say the most unvarnished version and they're this, clearly right? talking to bosses but you're not only gonna find this unvarnished version or people just taught sort of talking to bosses or talking from boss perspective really in business press um another example that i wanted to draw in from this is i want to play a brief clip from july this is a this was a npr segment on all things considered which apparently is getting over representation in death panel hate recently if you consider the emily oster Dave show patreon episode we just we recently did but um so this is from a all things considered feature called the struggles covid long haulers face at the workplace and so for context uh to set this up because this is a brief clip it's a little over a minute here all things considered speaks to two people one a former employee of what sounds like a military subcontractor i guess they're not really explicit um i guess for good reason uh but so this person lost her job after getting long covid um the other who you'll hear from first is a woman named roberta echeverry who they introduce as a disability management specialist who helps employers and employees find accommodations that work for everyone oh boy um so I guess an HR subcontractor. That's a terrifying um, description of someone's job. Um, that's a, I, that was a direct quote from NPR. So anyway. Uh, I so, gaslight people out of their accommodations to make sure your boss could keep the bottom line. So, um, so here's the clip. The uncertainty complicates things for employers too. Do you offer accommodations like a flexible schedule or extended time off or a less taxing role in another department? And if so, for how long? Accommodations are supposed to help workers get on a path back, she says. But with long COVID, you don't know whether, say, three months of leave will help resolve symptoms or not. And for some employers, three months of leave is not viable. Now, companies don't have to approve accommodations that present an undue burden to their oh business. But Echeverry urges her clients to try to find something that works. You have to show that you're actually not discriminating, right? That you know what the law is, that you're willing to give it good faith effort. Georgia Linders believes her employer did not make a good faith effort. Who's the military subcontractor? But oh, she's boy. also tried to put herself in their shoes. I understand it from a business point of view, like, why would you want to keep an employee that all of a sudden can only do a fraction of what they could do before? After a long process, she's now getting Social Security disability insurance. She spends what energy she has on advocacy, helping other long haulers stay employed. It helps her feel like she's contributing something to society, even if it's far from the life she wanted. You know, I don't want to be disabled. I don't want to be mm. taking money from the government. I'm only 45. I was going to at least work another 20 years. Now her work is all about getting by one day at a time. Andrea Shu, NPR News. But God. Uh, yeah. Okay, I don't. There's a lot going on there. We're not even going to be able to address everything going on in that There's so clip. much going on there. I, I want to quickly say one thing. As someone who's disabled, who's been pushed out of the workforce after almost a decade of trying to make it work with, you know, a couple you know, moments of asking for accommodations, of having my disability disclosed for me in a workplace where I had been hiding it in order to maintain employment. Like, I don't want to minimize the experience of 
how terrible it is to lose your job because you're sick. Like this has happened to me multiple times. It puts you in a really fucked, precarious financial situation. It puts all of your care in jeopardy. Like it can put your, your medication approvals on hold and completely it is devastating, which is why the reasonable accommodation framework is so fundamentally fucked up. Because as we discussed in the episode from last month with Jules in Taxonomy We Trust, like part of the way these reasonable accommodation frameworks were set up was favorable to bosses against the person seeking the accommodation, right? If you have a workplace that's really small, that's under 50 employees, this does not apply to you. If you work for the state or for a state university, this does not apply to you. You know, there are circumstances where it is legally sanctioned to discriminate against disabled people in terms of employment. And this is just how the system works, right? And part of the reason why it's so important to highlight this kind of bullshit framing of like, oh, what makes someone's life valuable and what makes someone productive and contributing to society is their productivity at work, their ability to maintain employment without any accommodations. How long are we supposed to really expect bosses to put up with illness? And if they're not going to be cured, like, what's the point of giving them the time off? Like that kind of fucking bullshit that we're calling out, you know, we're not saying that it it, it's like a problem that disabled people want to work. Like what we're saying is fundamentally this kind of idea of like disability being a sentence of poverty, disability, and the kind of this is the surplus class framing that we get into in health communism, right? This is a threat. Disability is posited as a population level threat that at any moment, you know, you too could become disabled and experience this poverty, this rejection, this unemployment, you know, this lack of access to care. And that in and of itself is used to frame disability as unequivocally bad and always a kind of doomed destiny. And all of these things are really built into each other. So it's like just absolutely fucking aggravating that (laughs) you have this piece of media that is essentially trying to normalize reasonable accommodations. I think maybe these reporters, they thought that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to humanize it and normalize it, make it Right. And instead, they're reinforcing, uh, I mean, you know, to quote directly from it with uh, the characteristic lilt of a, you know, NPR (laughs) reporter. It helps her feel like she's contributing something to society. Right. Like that line um, having, you know, it's tragic to hear this line reproduced by, you know, the person who was fired for because they didn't want to accommodate her disability herself saying, you know, quote, I understand it from a business point of view. Like, why would you keep an employee that all of a sudden can only do a fraction of what they could do before? Unquote. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is where the idea of like internalized ableism and lateral ableism are really, really useful. Right. It's not just that it calls out moments of, of sort of bigotry or bad behavior where people say shitty things about each other. This is what it looks like in practice for someone to be ableist against themselves. Right. And that's not an individual failing even. That's what we're saying is like that's something that the political economy is set up to produce in people. That is something that is just so broadly socially ingrained. And that's, you know, the way that we particularly in the chronic illness community, you know, 
as you become chronically ill and as you sort of go through this this transition period between you know, your past self that you had one idea of what your health was and your current self, which is, you know, experiencing a very different type of life, you know, your life has changed. And oftentimes during those first couple of months or years, you're really hard on yourself and you've got these really shitty ideas about what your life is now and your life being over and what your value is as a human being. And part of becoming disabled is like going through a very, very long social and emotional process of unlearning that shit. But these kinds of media framings and the way that we privilege this framing of illness, of disability, of being surplus, that's how folks learn these ideas, Yeah. right? These are not inherent in nature. Like these are socially constructed and reproduced Absolutely. through both media, culture, and our individual thoughts, actions, behaviors, and interactions with one another. And so that's and why the economy. Yeah. And right. That's why like to understand really, you know, what's going on with disability di discrimination. It's not that people hate disabled people. This is how the political economy is built to make you think of disability. Yeah. This is the only way we're allowed to think of disability. So, I mean, I think this brings us you know, beautifully, really straight into our second trope that we were going to talk about, um, which is the sort of, you know, young and healthy, they were young and healthy. And now look at them thing. You know, I'm, I'll set up this trope with just one headline. Um, here's the Guardian from October, quote, a young life interrupted finding hope and an identity while suffering from long COVID. Mm. Um, again, suffering is real, but framing the whole, <laughs> framing the ontology of this person through their own, through the, uh, you know, putative suffering that is assumed by the, uh, headline editor here basically is, is quite bullshit anyway. But so, so this trope, um, as we wanted to talk, talk about and talk through, I'll just say on our outline for this, as we were preparing, you know, stuff we were going to talk about for this. I'll, I'll just say actually what I've written on our outline verbatim, how, how I <laughs> described this, um, which is uh, so-and-so was young, healthy, a runner, and now he's a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> that made me laugh so much. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this will probably be really familiar with this as a We've trope. We've all seen people posting oh, this shit. Absolutely. Um, so actually first, yeah, I want to touch on it outside of like media framings in particular. Um, you know, the reason I say you might be familiar with the trope is because many of you will have seen like viral posts that have gone around over the last few years that says sometimes pretty explicitly, I thought I was hot shit and then COVID got me. I used to be young and healthy. I had no pre-existing conditions, often literally using the term pre-existing conditions, which reinforces a whole other thing. I used to run every day and now sometimes they say like, my life is over. My life as I knew it was over. And again, you know, here's the thing. Okay. That stuff is real as B was just talking about that stuff is totally real. Um, but I just want to break down that, that trope a little bit, you know, that, that person, that archetypal person, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Um, like that grief is real. You're coming to terms with, again, as B was just talking about interacting with your own body and with society in a really different way, in a way that like we're taught to think of as a way that is for and of other people. Right. Mm -hmm. It's always like, yeah. oh, that's illness and disability. That's something something that happens to someone else or whatever, which obviously completely ignores the many people that are born disabled. But, yeah. you know, uh, most of these um, narratives do. Right. right. So um, anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, and importantly, you know, they're obviously right about covid, too. Their message is always avoid it. 
you know, I had hubris about COVID because I thought of myself as young and healthy, which is a narrative that we in so many ways have tried to address about the like the young and healthy framework of COVID. Everyone is at risk to COVID. It's it's ridiculous to frame things in this. There like, is no such thing as a healthy body. Exactly. Um, and uh, read health communism to find more. Uh, anyway, <laughs> and but, Belly of the Beast by Deshaun Harrison. Yeah, actually, absolutely. It's uh, totally. If you finished health communism and, and you're you looking need a next f- book. and you need something else, Belly of the Beast by Deshaun Harrison. Um, so a- anyway, I digress. We're uh, so we're we're familiar with that trope, right? The trope here's a young, healthy person whose life and productivity were stolen from them. And there are a few examples I'm going to pull from this. Just just a couple real real brief ones because. Often, actually, I mean, frankly, this one, as you can tell, because there were already kind of hints or shades of of this particular trope in the last thing that we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, this one bleeds into and across everything else. But mm-hmm. um, the, the the examples that I want to pull from this, though, um, might be a little tough for some of our listeners, I think, because the examples I want to pull actually are from, um, you know, I, I could easily like go looking for some more explicitly like schlock conservative junk or whatever, some like anti-disability economic arguments coming from people you'd expect like fast company. Um, but I think the best way to illustrate this trope is actually going to be p- to pull from the work of someone who our listeners, I think many of them will be familiar with um, someone who's taken up a lot of space as a sort of expository voice, narrativizing long COVID. And that person is Ed Young. Um, and I'm not coming for Ed Young, just so whatever, as long as like, if you want to reach me about this, as always, um, you can find me at Matt Iglesias at slowboring.com. <laughs> However, um, I do think it's important to highlight how this trope pervades even some, uh, things that our listeners may not expect it to mm-hmm. Here are the examples of that. This one is from his, uh, recent article on long COVID and brain fog from this past September in the Atlantic. Quote, on March 25th, 2020, Hannah was texting with two friends when she realized that she couldn't understand one of their messages. In hindsight, that was the first sign that she had COVID-19. It was also her first experience with the phenomenon known as brain fog and the moment when her old life contracted into her current one. She once worked in artificial intelligence and analyzed complex systems without hesitation, but now runs into a mental wall when faced with tasks as simple as filling out forms. Her memory, once vivid, feels frayed and fleeting. Former mundanities, buying food, making meals, cleaning up, can be agonizingly difficult. Her inner world, what she calls the extras of thinking, like daydreaming, making plans, imagining, is gone. And now, uh, he he put a quote from the subject in the middle there, but I want to highlight that, yes, you heard that right. That paragraph ends with the words, her inner world is gone. Um... Next one from the same article, this time using the perspective of someone who themselves I don't think has long COVID, if I understand the article correctly, but who's had brain fog for decades and so is brought in as a um, embodied expertise um, on the on the subject of brain fog more generally. Quote, Fiona, meanwhile, was studying theoretical physics in college when she first got sick and her fog occluded a career path that was once brightly lit. Oh, boy. Um, This is a quote from the subject. I used to sparkle like I could pull these things together and start to see how the universe works. She told me I've never been able to access that sensation again, and I miss it every day like an ache. Um, Unquote. 
And, um, you know, I'm reading two things from the same article, but I, you know, I want to mention, for example, that in Ed Yong's very first article about long COVID in June 2020, used basically the same trope. One of the first stories that he tells in that, he says, quote, I interviewed nine COVID long-termers or long-haulers for this story, all of whom share commonalities. Many have never been admitted to an ICU or gone on a ventilator, so their cases technically count as mild, but their lives have nonetheless been flattened by relentless and rolling waves of symptoms that make it hard to concentrate, exercise, or perform simple physical tasks. Most are young. Most were previously fit and healthy, unquote. Oh, boy. Okay, so preface this. I have brain fog and I have a visual impairment where I used to be able to see. And then at 27, I stopped being able to see. So I understand um, these experiences that people are are going through of mourning, of grieving, of the ways that you see your life change and miss the things that you used to be able to do, the kind of bewildering terror of experiencing cognitive changes and not knowing what's going on or why it's happening or what's happening even like and and I understand why these experiences might seem like if they're presented this way that they might save some people from experiencing the same thing like I know that that's the kind of intent in sharing your story when you're coming from this position you you don't want anyone else to go through what you're going through because it also, sucks and i think also from an editorial perspective you know i get the move of look at this exceptional person right, right. that's I mean, what i wanted to touch on next. yeah that's the i mean go ahead well no i mean the this is the this is the hinge right because in these three framings that Artie's just read out from just two Ed Young pieces. And, and we're really fo- focusing on Ed's work in particular because these are some of the most widely shared and widely read accounts of long COVID that have been um, published in the media. And so that's that's a really sort of important social reproductive factor here to is that, that it shows up even there right right yeah. and it's sort of it, it being a widely read account it kind of sets the style for other accounts of, oh, of sure. how we're yeah. how we cover long COVID. oh and it certainly sets the style i mean i would say that um like ed yong's coverage has been compared to other coverage like quite empathetic and so i think it also sets the tone for like empathetic cover. You know what I mean? Like this is how we frame talking about long COVID in a way that is like empathetic and, you know, like listening to, to people talk about themselves. And I think that that, I mean, it's probably like a secondary or tertiary effect, but I do think that's important as well. No, absolutely. And, and when we think about the, the kind of subject matter of, of this being, you know, hyper-competent people are even knocked down to disability status. Yeah. Like, one, that is a a highly problematic framework. Oh, yeah. Um, that That is a kind of terrifying argument to be making if you have studied eugenics at all, if you have thought about disability hierarchies for a moment. Like, that should flip your stomach to, to sort of read that kind of framing. But just imagine if you were someone who was not a brilliant, quote unquote, AI researcher, was not, you know, someone who was super healthy, quote unquote, and super young. Like, does that make your impairment from COVID less drastic or important or less 
disruptive to your life? Absolutely not. But this yeah. kind of present, like the presentation of the extreme example as the kind of emotional reason to connect to this, right? That quote unquote, even these exceptional people, right? Right. Are knocked down to this level of the lowest form like, of life possible. Yeah. And now they're suff- you know, suffering through then using a, a metaphor, a cross-disability metaphor, which is number one no-no when you like learn how to write about disability properly. It, yeah. If you're talking <laughs> about things, you do not say, and they were blind to the fact that COVID was going to disable them or, and their Just world imagining. was occluded yeah. and darker. <laughs> like, I'm I don't, sorry. I don't want to pick on it, it too much because I'm starting to get that like Flanders kids like, stop, he's already dead situation <laughs> going on. But yeah. I just think that it's really important to point out that that what is going on here is a a hierarchy of value that is presented across three seemingly innocuous descriptions of very real suffering as a result of state abandonment that has resulted in people getting a condition after having been exposed to a virus and not having supports to then like cultural or economic supports. Mm-hmm. And this is an evidence of the cultural supports lacking. I right. Think. And there yeah. are many people who are suddenly in this position that were not in this position before. And fundamentally, we are not set up to accommodate anyone in this position. And it is a horrific experience of, of tragic grief to pass across this transom and experience this. But as I've been talking to a lot of other folks who have been disabled for a long time, who are sort of grappling with like trying to make room for people's grief while also making sure to try and explain why some of these things are things that for literal decades disabled folks have been trying to undo and teach people why we shouldn't use these kinds of ideas to make these arguments and the harm that they do. You know, like a lot of us have been like, oh, well, thank God no one was interviewing me in the first five years that I was sick. You know, thank God I didn't I wasn't on the record. I would have said terrible shit, you know, and this is this is a process of like transition into a different way of thinking about yourself. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it involves shifting ideas of the self. And it does mean that because it is a new thing, I mean, and it does mean that because, you know, long COVID has only been a thing for a certain period of time to that, like, it's no wonder that these are narratives that get reproduced in this reporting, for example, because a lot of people are going through this and it's real. Yeah. And because it's it's a kind of novel scale and novel concentration, right? This is setting the tone for how other people should be thinking of the way that they're experiencing this grief and, and transition from, you know, pre-long COVID to post-long COVID, right? Which is which is a kind of reckoning probably with the idea that you were never really healthy to begin with, right. you know, but but ultimately yeah. what this does is it for for people who are coming into the experience of disability into the experience of chronic illness this sets a tone and an expectation both for how it will be covered and how you're supposed to think and talk about your experience that actually is not necessarily building towards disability liberation or building towards a kind of support and an economic safety net that needs to exist to support people when they experience this because COVID or not, this is a very common phenomenon. There are millions of people with ME-CFS who have experienced this for decades, right? There are millions of people with other autoimmune diseases who experience very similar things because pathology is just a kind of big 
billing code, right? <laughs> These are a bunch of things that are very similar and then differentiated by very small clinical differences that point you in one direction or another, maybe towards something that's more effective or less effective or one disease process or another, but the experience of these things and the symptoms, there's a lot of overlap, right? So like there are millions and millions of people who can now look to these accounts of long COVID to understand their own journey through chronic illness and sort of go, oh, okay, well, maybe the tone is now I'm supposed to be really hard on myself. Yeah. Now I'm supposed to think of my life as over. And that's fundamentally fucking terrible. Yeah. And just kind of picking up on some of what you are saying here, I think that another second order discursive function of, you know, so-and-so was a healthy young runner and like now they're a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> framings around long COVID is to feed, I think, really, really more like a very moralistic understanding of COVID itself. It makes me kind of uncomfortable the way that these stories are kind of deployed, like it feels a little dehumanizing to like talk about, you know, people being reduced to this like state of death in life. Yeah. But it also, I think, has, again, this like second order effect of fueling this idea that like, if you get COVID that somehow in some way, you know, long COVID is, is punishment that's being meted out on, you know, individual people. Yeah. Um, for individual behavior rather than for the reality, which is state abandonment. Yeah, totally, totally. And it's, you know, it feeds into this moralism where it's like, okay, well, you know, like if you, if you exposed yourself to COVID, like you might have a stroke, you know, and like here are, you know, sensational, you know, headlines about exactly what we're talking about. You know, someone young with no pre-existing conditions who got COVID and then had a stroke. And that is supposed to just stand in, you know, and be self-evident as oh, like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. I mean, it's bad. Like having, having a stroke is very bad. Like, like we've been saying the suffering is real. Being sick sucks. Like no one, <laughs> no one likes it. Um, but I think that, that these types of media framings, the way that they dovetail very nicely with moralistic understandings of COVID infection, I think they can really hamper the ability to form more sort of like generative collective, like narratives and understandings of like illness and recovery and like non-recovery. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Cause I think th this is the thing, like two things can be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. One bad that so many bad that there has been state abandonment and that so many people have long COVID and that, you know, there are so many newly disabled people who were disabled because of a mass disabling event mm -hmm. that was a political tragedy and because right. they were lied to right yeah. and because COVID. they were lied to yeah. right 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 all of the, all of that everything that we've been talking about about the sociological production at the end of the pandemic and everything mm -hmm. that we've been talking about on this show like for, forever trying to trace out how this has happened pre -pandemic. In, in the u.s and yeah. pre-pandemic too obviously but um but so that that can be true and then at the same time it's like okay but those people who are now disabled, like we have to support them. It, it is not like that now that that has happened, like, oh, those people are as good as dead or whatever, yeah. or that like you should fear long COVID because it will effectively mean that you're going to be like dead or unproductive. You will be made surplus. Right, that, exactly. Like, you realize we're not out of this. I remember very early <laughs> yeah. in the pandemic when I was like, you know, I'm not afraid of, God forbid, dying. I'm afraid of long COVID because we started seeing it early. And I know mm. a lot about this condition. So it, it was like, that's the thing I want to try yeah, to avoid be careful. if I can. 
the fear of becoming surplus yeah mm-hmm. exactly is is i mean it's real but it's yeah. like it is a product of the political economy that we are in which is a fundamentally fucking murderous one sure and one that <laughs> extracts and abandons but just but to sort of stop at the like oh these things are self-evident is to just completely buy into that Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like murderous political economy. Yeah. Absolutely. That like sensational kind of, you know, worst case scenario, like death in life actually is like a lot of people's realities. And I feel like sometimes this kind of framework, even when it's, you know, coming from people that are experiencing it themselves, you know, even when it's framed in this kind of empathetic way, like as in a lot of Ed Young's reporting, I think it does kind of like a disservice to the fact that, you know, this is a lot of people's realities and like, what are we going to do about that? You know, like, and what Mm -hmm. is, what is like a constructive, you know, and like empathetic approach to the fact that this now, yeah, is, is reality for a lot of people and not just like a sensational scare story, you know, with whatever, (laughs) with whatever Mm -hmm. objective it might have. And this is why I think the idea of a spoiled identity um, as a kind of problematizing frame for understanding a way to think beyond these media representations that we're often presented with of like why you should care about COVID, why you should avoid COVID infection, because you could become a spoiled identity, Mm -hmm. because you could be surplused, because you could become disabled. And that fundamentally could be the end of your life and all of the joy that you're ever going to experience for the rest of your life forever and ever Mm -hmm. and also financial precarity like that for someone who's experiencing illness to be told that first of all um who's already gotten long covid like for that's a that's a terrible way to sort of accelerate any bad feelings that they're having but this also is not like a new phenomenon that's new to long COVID. This is a long-standing problem in the way that we represent the reasons why you're supposed to care about disability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea of the spoiled identity is not a new idea. This is an old idea. And one of the people sort of responsible for popularizing it was a sociologist named Irving Goffman who wrote the book on stigma. Um, There are a lot of observations that he has that really suck. I don't recommend (laughs) stigma as a read. He's pretty anti-patient. He's pretty against the idea of patients having expertise. He's more interested in forwarding the idea that sociologists have something to say about institutionalization and asylums and that there is validity to like observing and interviewing subjects for research purposes. So like, it's important to understand, like we're not like limitations. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Goffman. Like we're like, okay, we're like using Goffman at arm's length, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about this world identity, because, you know, one of the things that is important to understand here is that this, idea of the spoiled identity and sort of how it's reproduced has always been connected in its theorization to media representations having a huge role in dictating the kind of norms of what a spoiled identity is and how it works. And part of the way that happens, and Goffman writes about this in Stigma, which is from 1963. So as I'm saying, this is pre-existing COVID. This is a longstanding phenomenon. As he says that, you know, what happens when you are a particular person with stigma, if you you sort of attain the attention of a reporter or a writer, you're 
given a quote new career um, that you're you're thrust into where you're supposed to represent your category. And he said that, you know, that's a bad thing because people can't not be biased when talking about themselves and that they're not experts because they're too involved. So as I said, we're not like being like, yes, Queen Goffman. But <laughs> part of what Goffman wrote about is that the way that writers bring attention to these sort of quote unquote professionalized representatives and these professionalized narratives that represent these stigma categories is really important. And he wrote that whether a writer takes a stigma very seriously or makes light of it, they must define it as something worth writing about. This minimal agreement, even when there are no others, helps to consolidate the belief in the stigma as a basis for self-conception. Here again, representatives are not representative, for representation can hardly come from those who are relatively unlettered, as in patient professionals are not really professionals because they lack professional credentials. Thanks. Quote, in any case, those who share the noted person's stigma suddenly become accessible to the normals immediately around them and become subject to a slight transfer of credit or discredit to themselves. Their situation thus leads them easily into living in a world of publicized heroes and villains of their own stripe, their relation to this world being underlined by immediate associates, both normal and otherwise, who bring them news about how one of their kind has fared. And I hope that that kind of understanding of what these accounts yeah, are supposed to do sociologically. That's pretty dead on how one of their kind has fared. Yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted people who maybe don't have the experience of disability or who are new to the experience of disability to understand the dominant way of, of how for decades it's been understood these media portrayals shape the sense of self and place in society and self-worth and how it dictates the social role of the sick and disabled to a very narrow perspective that's always subject to the professional credentialed authorities oversight which then has of course substantial political feedback yes in in terms of yeah um i think we 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 have to move on but actually this is kind of getting us straight into our third one which is fantastic also um i i think that i would just say the last thing just just to to highlight that i think is very important what you mentioned the reason for it be it's not just like the saying oh drawing attention to these um extreme swings of like oh you know i i was this like incredible person and then um, my disability has like ruined me that kind of framework or whatever long COVID has ruined me has spoiled my identity so much of those as you're as you're drawing attention to so many of those examples are done so in a way of like here is this bourgeois maybe upper middle class professional here is this you know person who had kind of institutional credentials or something or who was in a who is in a privileged position in society and they have lost their privilege and become surplus mm -hmm. that's very important i think a way to to round this out a way to really summarize kind of the argument that we're saying here is i think there's a when this gets talked about you know there, there's this there's this other kind of you know trope people will be familiar with of like oh you know this event this crisis um imagine the you know scientists and novelists that it will steal from us in the imagine future imagine the loss of culture and, that's going to result <laughs> and from right all and the stability and what we're saying is 
okay, scientists and novelists, but like, what about the fuck ups and the perverts? You know what I mean? <laughs> like those are important too. Anyway. Um, so as, as I mentioned, this brings us to the, the, the final thing, which I guess is less of a trope and more of, um, we're, we're going to look at this whole thing kind of through a very specific recent article, um, that came out in New York magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I get to that though, to, as a reminder, the third trope here is what I, how I summarized it before was as casting doubt on long COVID, whether by suggesting diagnostic criteria needed to be narrowed or that, you know, we can't trust people with long COVID to advocate for themselves or, or something or to like even that. know themselves or to know themselves. Yeah. Right. Um, and again, I summarized this by saying this is the quote unquote, just asking questions archetype. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a recent piece in New York magazine by Jeff Wise that I think can be frankly, you know, again, compared to this, um, just asking questions framework, uh, style of expository journalism that we addressed in, for example, the episode with Jules from a while ago about the Emily Bazelon trans panic piece in the New York mm-hmm. times. And, uh, with this one, the long and short of it is, um, so the piece is from November 4th and the title is has long COVID always existed. The pandemic might not have spawned a new chronic illness, but rebranded an old one. And we'll get into this a little bit. We're off. It's there's too much wrong with it to like address everything, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get into a little bit of this. And so let me summarize the argument overall that it's making. So in it, the author makes a lot of claims about both both long COVID and MECFS. Really, a lot of inaccurate claims about both. Oh my of them. god! This piece is essentially um, it's about disease based advocacy. Really, mm-hmm. um, specifically about the tension between patient groups, um, the people we've been talking about who have long COVID or MECFS and their their allies. Um, so between those patient groups and professionals, physicians, what they refer to in this article constantly as the medical establishment with, with a, a capital, capital E. e <laughs> I know. Which is obnoxious. But also, despite that affectation, the piece overwhelmingly is about siding with that medical capital e establishment that's why it's capitalized (laughs) exactly (laughs) um in the you know siding with that medical establishment in the face of basically um uppity crips i guess i would point Um, out also that this framing is actually false and those he identifies as the medical establishment are actually a kind of radical fringe who yeah. will not budge on a decades old prejudice yeah, I'm, that I'm getting, is a settled debate i'm getting to that and i want us <laughs> i want us to like get really deeply into what you mean by that but um just to, to, to close just basically to preface, to, yeah. Yeah, to pre- so like um <laughs> that establishment is really more like a bunch of fucking assholes so it, it essentially <laughs> it, it portrays people with long covid or with mecfs uh, but it portrays patient groups essentially as consistently bending science to their whims or i think one quote it literally uses is like i think he says cutting the line uh at one point like cut as though cutting the line of um the knowledge production process the scientific process and (laughs) one person quoted in this article literally uses the words perverting perverting that scientific process in the process (laughs) perversion in my scientific process (laughs) yeah um and then somehow just sorry, I'm almost done explaining no, no, this article, but again, it's it's big and there's a lot wrong with it. Um, somehow it gets even worse uh, because anyway, the the upshot here is that the capital E establishment he's talking about, as B was pointing out, is actually more of what he who he's pointing to the 
the people he's explicitly pointing to are actually some extremely um are are some basically fringe people citing some extremely discredited claims uh about MECFS and how to treat it and in the argument of the article by extension because it's you know because it's supposedly true of MECFS it should also these you know discredited claims should also apply to covid so long covid ignoring um, the fact that the MECFS presentation is only one of a an umbrella of things that fall under long COVID. He collapses mm-hmm. it all mm-hmm. into yeah. this, this fantastically right. ridiculous. It's just a rebrand. Right. Exactly. And so, but anyway, basically like the, as I was saying, the upshot is essentially the um, persistent, know nothing, disruptive patients versus these scientists who are to, read the uh the the premise and the argument of the article being silenced Mm -hmm. yeah and i think what's really important to understand is that like the meaning of medical establishment in this piece is really fluid right so at some point he refers to the medical establishment and he's talking about this renegade band of researchers who are holding (laughs) on to very old ideas about mecfs and extrapolating that to covid and At other times when he says the medical establishment, he's talking about like the CDC or the Lancet or the NIH or the NHS um, in the United Kingdom recognizing the research done in partnership with activists. So the, the medical establishment is kind of used in this piece as both a good thing and a bad thing whenever necessary. But the the crux of it is, is that essentially what this guy is arguing who, you know, the majority of his his work really in the past has been about like airplanes. He wrote for Popular Mechanics for a really long time. But the crux of this piece is really about reopening a debate that has been quite settled about both the nature of the disease process of MECFS and also how to treat it best and essentially trying to expand this framing to include long COVID while also mm-hmm. reducing the idea of what long COVID can be to eliminate things. To just MACFS. Yeah. yeah, to eliminate things like the stroke um, or cardiovascular things that we've seen, to eliminate sort of other different types of autoimmune presentations that we've seen as part of long COVID. You know, there's some people who are having MECFS symptoms and other things, but this article really has this kind of ideological goal that's twofold. One is to frame patient activists as dangerous and the research that they've participated in or contributed to or advocated for as therefore suspect by association and not valid. And also to sort of say, oh, and also in order to get the the control on this, we need to limit uh, who counts as a patient. And one of the things that I think is really important is that What's actually leveraged in this article and one of the reasons why we're sort of tying this into Ed Young's work for The Atlantic is that the author really leans on these portrayals of disability, um, particularly downstream of MECFS or long COVID, as being a, a end of life, a living death, a spoiled identity, and uses the kinds of framings that we've been talking about as some of the support for his arguments. You know, he he notes even that some of these framings of the suffering and sort of sickness 
in and of themselves, he he argues, sort of contributes to the misallocation of resource funding towards studying these diseases, sort of implying that both activists are pressuring researchers to cave to their demands, shaping the conversation about their disease too much. Again, that's why I was reading the Goffman quote, because this is a very old idea about medical expertise, but also that we should return to the old model of treating MECFS and apply that to the entire long COVID population, which includes essentially treating these diseases that are complex and multisystemic with a combination of what's called graded exercise therapy, which is just gradually increasing your exercise, <laughs> and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a type of biopsychiatric and uh, sort of psychosocial therapy that can often be sort of in combination with antidepressants or just doing these mental exercises where you sort of teach your body to stop responding to stimuli and sort of talk yourself out of uh, being aware of your symptoms. And so, you know, it's sort of framed as being about, oh, well, you know, the big problem is that folks can't decide whether or not MECFS and long COVID are in your head or in your body, and that that's the sort of fundamental debate here. And ultimately, what they're kind of what what is kind of done in this piece is that he's rehabilitating this study uh, called the PACE study that's been widely discredited and kind of reopening this debate as if it's unsettled, but it has actually been quite settled since 2015. So maybe what we should do first is sort of get into what the PACE study is, because this is a study that was UK government funded, and um, it's been roundly criticized and discredited, but the article really hinges the kind of ideological argument that's that's being made on the validity of the study and the critique of it being basically uh, a kind of exaggeration or a hysterical response to the study's truths that it's been telling. So, Abby, would you be down to sort of break down what is wrong with the PACE study and sort of what the limitations are to the analysis that ended up getting criticized and sort of what the whole deal with this thing is. Because if you read this New York Mag article, you would come away with the impression that the PACE study is the highest level of rigorous uh, methodological standards you've ever seen. And that this is the only treatment for a very severe and debilitating disease mm -hmm. and that you would be absolutely fucking yourself over to not try. Yeah. So the PACE trial, you kind of set me up for this. I What I see as the fundamental problem with the PACE trial is kind of the theoretical basis for assigning the treatments that are assigned. And so I'll say this now and then, you know, uh, we can circle back to this um, at the end. So the, the treatments that are evaluated in the PACE trial, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, and I think graded exercise therapy or GET, the, the theoretical basis for these treatments is in something that's called the behavioral deconditioning model of chronic fatigue syndrome, which basically, I mean, <laughs> it, it's very victim blaming, right? The behavioral deconditioning model uh, basically says that CFS results when you hyperfixate on your symptoms and then you something occurs called deconditioning when you like don't exercise for a long time and then it like creates some kind of negative feedback loop of all these like disordered all this disordered cognition about the symptoms that you're having 
Um, and so like CBT and get, I think the impetus for evaluating these is this like behavioral deconditioning model where it's like, okay, you need to like expose yourself to exercise and also address, you know, this disordered cognition that you're having, um, through CBT. So like, you know, I was thinking kind of in summary with the PACE trial, there are, um, lots of methodological issues that I'm going to get into, but I think like, I mean, this is particularly applicable to CBT, but I think that like the major problem is positioning these things as cures for MECF, right? Right? And it's like the notion of cure, the original PACE trial, they even say, you know, the study confirms that recovery from CFS is possible, um, which (laughs) is not well established at all, least of all by this study. So just with that as a preface, the PACE trial, it was a randomized trial. I think it recruited like 600 people and it randomized the participants to receiving different treatments. One of the treatments was like standard medical care. One was, I think, adaptive pacing. One was CBT and one was GET. And methodologically, like from from my reading of the study, the biggest issue is the sort of post hoc lowering of the threshold for what counts as improvement or recovery. Um, So the authors of the trial, the investigators did a lot of things that I think, you know, are pretty common in biomedical research. Um, You know, research has a lot of degrees of freedom built into it about how you collect and analyze data. And some of those degrees of freedom, you know, it's not like it's it doesn't rise to the level of being like outright malpractice, outright like fabricating data. But there are a lot of steps along the way of conducting research where you can make choices that will cast, you know, maybe more favorable light on, you know, your your study hypothesis um, as opposed to maybe less favorable light. You know, there are choices that you can make to present, you know, the the data that you collect in a way that is like more more favorable to the hypothesis that you started out with. And the 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 investigators of this trial They were, you know, advisors to the UK government, like Department of Work and Pensions, which I think was a sponsor of PACE. But they were also, you know, there was a conflict of interest. They were also advising insurance companies at the same time um, that were, you (laughs) know, concerned about like, just like what we were talking about, lost productivity due to MECFS. Also worth noting that like the DWP is like the Social Security Administration in the UK. So they manage... Um, and supervise disability certifications and recertifications. So there's also incentive to proving the fact that MECFS can be cured because mm-hmm. that gives you impetus to impose austerity on that patient population when it comes to yeah. certifying and recertifying their benefits. Yeah. So these authors, you know, they, I think it's fairly well established at this point that they have something of like an ideological, a professional investment in, you know, the idea that CBT and GET are effective therapies. And the biggest like methodological issue with the trial that I saw was that they lowered, I think I said this already, they lowered the threshold for what counts as improvement, which made it look like um, (laughs) CBT and GET were, you know, much more effective than like standard medical care. A, re- a subsequent like reanalysis of this data by other investigators using the threshold for improvement, you know, the definition of improvement that the PACE investigators had originally laid out in the protocol for their trial showed <laughs> a much, much less um, definitive improvement over 
standard medical care and also took pains, uh, this reanalysis took pains to highlight that rates of recovery by, you know, any definition were extremely low across all four treatment arms. And that showed, you know, much less dramatic improvement because like, you know, the, the original, like the, the findings from the original PACE study, they were saying, oh, like a 59% improvement um, over <laughs> it was standard, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, over standard medical care for either CBT or get, I can't remember, you know, the reanalysis, that relative advantage, it was like a 20, 20% improvement. Um, but again, like you have to remember that that's a relative comparison against standard medical care. And when you just kind of look absolutely at like rates of recovery across all four, you know, again, those rates um, were very low across across all four treatment arms. So, you know, this is all to say, again, that like the PACE study, my impression of it as, you know, someone who came to it, you know, very recently and still does not know all the ins and outs um, is that it really overstated the therapeutic uh, and the curative potential of CBT and of get. And that I think, uh, like I said, uh, kind of at the top of this description, I think that is like the real, that's the real issue. The methodological stuff, it's not great, you know, and a trial like this that was informing guidelines, uh, like in the UK is much too high stakes to, to, um, kind of let those methodological issues slide. But the, the overarching issue is situating the research in this kind of behavioral deconditioning framework and furthermore in this like curative framework. The problem comes, I think, when, you know, as, as the uh, investigators in the PACE trial did, you're positing CBT as a, like a cure, as something that will lead to recovery, that will restore, you know, your, your spoiled identity to its like previous, you know, fullness or, or whatever, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's kind of, that's, that's where I see the biggest, the biggest issue. And like, I mean, get is, uh, is really not good. I think for people with CFS, there's a lot of data showing that graded exercise or graduated exercise therapy can actually be quite harmful. So, you know, I, I think it's both the, um, the methodological issues making these therapies kind of like look better than they are giving the authority to this study to really inform these guidelines. But then also the entire conceptualization of how, you know, CFS is being theorized in that study, I think is just completely, completely off and, you know, completely victim blaming and treating CFS as, you know, a, a figment of the imagination, like a, you know, of, of a disordered imagination or something like that. And, you can see why something like the PACE trial and something like this kind of like behavioral deconditioning theory is appealing in terms of its, you know, explanatory power or like its descriptive power for, for long mm -hmm. COVID. But I think it should be resisted. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just to sort of give an example of how the kind of cognitive behavioral model of managing ME-CFS is described in the article to just sort of underline what Abby's saying, that this is really about not only sort of locating the problem in, in the individual person, but also sort of proposing therapies that fit into the capitalist political economy because mm -hmm. what characterizes ME-CFS and ME-CFS presentations of long COVID is something called post-exertional malaise. And this can happen as a result of 
cognitive exertion or physical exertion or movement and essentially why get is dangerous and why it can be harmful to people uh, in particular often making them worse or making it harder for them to stay employed because they're out of work more is that after like a period of exertion there's a kind of like rubber band effect where you pay for it later like you pay for the activity in a reduction of mobility in an increase in symptoms and so actually the the kind of framework of how CBT and GET are applied in particular to these conditions and what they're trying to sort of target, right, is to use CBT to tell people to ignore their limitations and to sort of force them into trying to power through post-exertional malaise. Not only not only ignore them, but that their, you know, limitations are figments of their imagination, you know, are like yeah. pathologically incorrect thoughts that are originating, you know, in their disordered brains. Anyway, sorry right. to interrupt you. No, 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 no. It's good. So, so the author writes, um, the cognitive behavioral model holds that some initial trauma like infection or an emotional crisis inflicts fatigue and pain on a patient who then tries to avoid worsening their condition by minimizing physical activity. The more bed-bound a patient becomes, the more unpleasant exertion feels, and the more they avoid it, and the more out of shape they become. Jesus. Um, Then they quote Sir Simon Wesley, who is a professor of psychiatry in London, who writes, quote, the result is a vicious circle of symptoms, avoidance, fatigue, demoralization, and depression, the clinical picture of CFS. I think this gets to the heart of some of the big claims that this article is making. But also, I think, again, you know, this relates really well, as you're kind of mentioning, to the other two tropes and a lot of the other just other general tropes that we're not even really talking about today of just problems with how long COVID and, and as we're talking about Certainly other conditions are, are talked about, considered, and how we talk about disability more generally. I think that a really good example of this, too, is found in this anecdotal thing later, which dovetails with the sort of, um, oh, the patients are leading a crusade against the professionals mm-hmm. strain of this article. <laughs> so I want to I want to draw attention to, to this really quick. Um, and this is, I think, just, again, extending off of, off of the little bit that you were reading. So he talks about uh, Paul Garner, who is a professor of infectious diseases in the UK um, who got COVID in 2020, developed long COVID, and writes of his experience, quote, looking for answers, he became active in long COVID groups and read up an advice for people with ME-CFS. To avoid triggering post-exertional malaise, he took the advice of patient advocates and carefully paced his activities. Despite his best efforts, a 10-minute bike ride sent him into a three-day relapse. Determined to pace himself more carefully, he paid careful and constant attention to his body, yet for all his efforts, his relapses only became more frequent. Eventually, Garner decided to change course after talking to a psychologist in training, a psychologist in training, who had her, who had, had chronic fatigue syndrome herself. Again, um, so many had, people had, had, yeah. buy the bullshit, talk themselves out of things, are ableist against themselves. It's but it's, also so this, but again, so this infectious <laughs> disease. Uh, th- this person who has been, you know, name checked as an infectious disease specialist, basically, you know, someone who's like certified to know about these things, etc. Not about like 
conditions themselves, certainly. Yeah, he knows nothing about about, autoimmune diseases or anything like that. um, (laughs) Talks to a psychologist in training who says, um, this is uh, a quote from Garner himself, quote, she explained that when you get anything stressful, whether a virus or an emotional shock, it sets off a stress response in the reptilian part of the brain. That's just saying reptilian part of the brain is hokum, but whatever. (laughs) A brand new virus will certainly do that. Your nervous system is on high alert to shut your body down to conserve energy. And these deep automatic responses to protect you can get dysfunctional after the virus has gone, but the stress remains. So you're left with this misadjusted set of regulatory functions, like an oversensitive smoke alarm, unquote. It's not that you're sick, you're just antisocial, sweetheart. What's so Um, funny about this is that like the disease process is not known, right? Like Mm -hmm. at, at best... This is like a, a theory about how the disease process is working. And when yes. you say it out loud like that, it sounds, I mean, to me, it sounds ridiculous. Um, yeah, like, so I, so I talked to my friend, a psychologist in training, and she said, so, she you threw know, five metaphors it's at like me. when, yeah. when you're under like a lot of stress and like, I don't know, a novel coronavirus is like a lot of stress, man, like. You're going to, you know, like the reptile part of your brain just just engages and you just your whole body goes haywire and you don't get and, you know, like whatever, like like obviously post viral conditions clearly as we're talking about a real thing. But this is like like your body is is going haywire. It's just not because you're freaked out. Exactly. It's, it's not, not because it's you're not, overly it's not stressed. This <laughs> like this word salad that he's putting. Out. Look, can I yeah. just really, really quickly? Yeah, yeah. The, the um the because the, it gets worse from here immediately after um the the author then jumps back in to explain uh what was happening with garner uh quote she showed him she showed garner that the way that he was thinking about his symptoms was affecting how he experienced them by paying obsessive attention to his symptoms he was increasing his stress levels and making them worse garner began to believe that recovery was possible he stopped reading stories about chronic illness and practiced diverting attention from his bodily symptoms he began exercising again quick pause he stopped reading stories about chronic illness and practiced diverting attention from his bodily symptoms. Yeah, whatever. I mean, how much does this sound like the kind of program of don't let fear be worse than the virus? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in January 2021, he wrote his final blog post for the BJM. Quote, I have recovered, he wrote. I did this by listening to people that have recovered, not people that are still unwell. <sighs> And by understanding that our unconscious normal thoughts and feelings influence the symptoms we experience, unquote. This is, and then the author, one might expect that his fellow long COVID sufferers would have cheered on his recovery, but over a hundred people posted comments to his piece, the majority angry or dismayed. Others attacked him on Facebook and demanded he withdraw his recovery story. I've had death threats, he says. And so again, you know, some like extremely patronizing and condescending bullshit being published in the bmj saying stop listening to people who are still unwell right because what this article does is it frames the the primary issue that's being debated over mecfs and by extension long covid as being is it in the body or in the mind which first of all is fucking categorically ridiculous they're the same they're the same (laughs) uh like where is your mind located Outside of your body? What the fuck are you talking about? The immune system is controlled by not your brain? Like, what are you fucking talking about? That doesn't, it's, 
anyways. Yeah, you've seen The Matrix. You know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> that that being the kind of framework that's always framed in the popular discourse as being the real issue is, you know, is ME-CFS psychogenic? Is ME-CFS real? Is it biological or is it in your head? Like, you know, a lot of us who are in this this community and experience this, like, would love to never hear this fucking debate again because mm-hmm. it masks what the actual debate really fucking is, which is that folks who are advocating for CBT and get folks who think that MECFS is psychogenic, perhaps, or even folks who think it's real, quote unquote, or biological, as I'm saying, all of this shit is fucking meaningless semantics and actually beside the point. What they're actually arguing over is whether or not People with MECFS are keeping themselves sick. Yeah. Yep. And doing if it they to could just yep. make themselves well, or if there is a cognitive block that is preventing them, perhaps the formation of community around their disease identity is preventing them from getting well. Perhaps they're just not exercising enough, and perhaps they just don't want to get well. Deviance. That's the actual, actual conversation. I mean, Adam Gaffney is quoted in this piece as saying, oh, we'll see there's this kind of hierarchy. And if you have a disease that's like readily available on a diagnostic test, you kind of get priority and people recognize you more. And it's really just the issue is that there aren't good tests. And even if, COVID, you know, even if long COVID is psychogenic, which he's been arguing a lot uh, for on Twitter, that doesn't mean it's not real. The brain is in the body. Like, absolutely. Yes. Adam yeah, if you also posted, if you like, take issue with me calling long COVID psychogenic, that means that you are rejecting the integration of mind and but like shut the fuck up, right? <laughs> and, and also, it's worth pointing out that he has repeatedly posted just one day of bed rest can lead to decompensation. This is a kind of slippery slope. Yeah, argument get your ass out of made. bed. <laughs> Not an argument of report to oh, work is this in people's heads or is it in their bodies? I'm like, I don't even, that fucking doesn't mean anything, first of all. But second of all, the real thing that's being debated is are these people sort of making themselves sick or not? Are mm-hmm. these people to blame validly taking the time to rest or are they stealing that rest from the capitalist political economy? Are they stealing the sick role that they're not entitled to by refusing to get better? under the circumstances where there are available cures for their disease mm-hmm. and for their suffering and yeah. for their spoiled identity. And therefore, what do we owe people who refuse to be productive workers versus what do we owe people who cannot help but be unproductive? Yeah, And that and then- distinction is what's up for debate. Yep. Not a mind-body thing, not is it real or is it not. It's the distinction of are these people stopping themselves from getting well and then it's worth then just to you know maybe maybe round this out actually like it's worth saying then the way that that lands in this article specifically (laughs) which is again not uncommon to the arguments around this it lands like this basically um the author goes through you know, a, a couple more people who basically he says are, you know, being silenced uh, from mm-hmm. their views um, about long COVID and MECFS. It's like the cancel culture argument. It's yeah, he does a cancel culture argument <laughs> um, and concludes with this like incredible whataboutism saying, uh, quote, meanwhile, the biological theory of long COVID 
like that for MECFS, still lacks compelling evidence. Which implies that, like, the interpretation that these people just are making themselves sick and don't want to get better is Mm -hmm. the right one. Right. And also the Goffman assertion of, like, and these people cannot possibly be experts on themselves. They're too involved to see clearly. Of course, this is paired with then... Uh, I think the next paragraph also begins with a meanwhile mm-hmm. quote. Meanwhile, researchers have found at least one positive link between long COVID and psychological distress. <laughs> I know um, the study that they're talking about, and no, they haven't. Like, so, it's just <laughs> not true. This is like the quintessential example of cherry picking. Meanwhile, this one study doesn't show evidence of the thing I'm arguing against. Meanwhile, this second study absolutely shows arguments for the things that i want to prove yeah. um finally he you know he talks to this person who's as i'm saying who's being silenced uh quote i was coached a long time ago when it came to interviews about MECFS with the media don't even mention the negative stereotypes lucinda bateman wrote me in an email at this point it is ridiculous to discuss whether long COVID is psychological or physical real organic we know long COVID has biological underpinnings because scientific research supports it both now and historically with other post-viral syndromes unquote to her and others the author says it's only a matter of time until the underpinning is found Constrained by the limits of acceptable discourse, science (laughs) is effectively limited to looking for its keys only under the light of the lamppost. The NIH's $1.15 billion long COVID research project is specifically aimed at identifying, quote, the underlying biological cause, unquote, having apparently decided that there is one to begin with, Mm. which is just wow. And that's ultimately one of those beautiful moments where a death panel episode starts and ends on the same note, because this is like (laughs) one of the best expressions of the kind of debt and eugenic burden argument, right? It's like, oh, watch out. We're spending all of this money on bad science because uppity patients have upset the balance of credentialed experts to lay people. And that is resulting in us wasting money on research on their disease towards a cure that is not real. Right. Right. And that is the crux of the debt and eugenic burden argument as it's so often iterated. Like we couldn't possibly spend money on trying to support these people. We couldn't possibly spend money on trying to study these people. But what we can spend money on is pushing them into programs where we teach them how to talk themselves out of the distress that they're experiencing, how to talk themselves out of seeking medical care and how to talk themselves out of pacing themselves and going with the time that their body is dictating for them in order for them to keep time and keep pace with capitalism. And that's ultimately the kind of framework that runs through a lot of the coverage of long COVID in the media. And what this results in, again, is the kind of idea of like this becomes the way that both people think about themselves, that people are thought of by the people in their lives, how bosses think of you, how your friends think of you, how doctors think of you. This becomes a a reality, whether it has any bearing in reality initially or not. And so the kind of, you know, absolute dreams of assholes like the guy who wrote this New York Mag article, who's really kind (laughs) of like litigating for scientists who 
do not need to be defended, who are just assholes who have been sort of pushing the idea that their funding is tied up in because they want to continue their funding because they have, you know, a kind of professional interest in maintaining their authority. He's he's really litigating and bullying a bunch of patients on behalf of these people, some of whom are like not even alive anymore and not even around. You know, the 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 kind of stakes here are presented as so high. He's basically accusing the United States government of wasting money capitulating to patients and meeting their, you know, unnecessary demands. And it really reminds me so much of like the things that people said in defense of researchers who wanted the NIH to keep spending money on studying AZT when you had HIV AIDS activists saying, hold the fuck up, like AZT is killing us faster than AIDS. We have to study something else. Clearly this drug is not working. And they ultimately were fucking right in the end of the day. And a lot of people died that didn't have to die. And a lot of people suffered being treated with something that wasn't actually helping their their symptoms, that was making them sicker for the hubris and ego of those poor little researchers who, you know, had set out on a hypothesis who were not necessarily, you know, proving what they had initially gone after, but who had a kind of committed career objective oriented around that type of research and, you know, had interest in in continuing that as a therapeutic framework. And it, and it's not a conspiracy. This is just how political economy works. This is just the, the way that the incentives of, of research are is oriented towards things that sort of can create markets or create opportunities to reclaim people back into the workforce, to cure people to reduce the burden of disability on society. It's it's never about, you know, here's a patient population who's suffering, who, you know, maybe we could improve the their experience of life. Maybe we could improve their symptoms. Maybe they don't have to be in so much pain. Maybe there are ways of mitigating this through simple changes like pacing, like resting when you need rest, right? Which is really what pacing is. is it's about being aware of the functional limitations that your disease is placing on the way that your body and homeostasis works and how much exertion you can actually handle before you pay for it, right? But that framework, that framework doesn't produce anything that can be marketed into a product. That framework doesn't produce a way to put people back in the workforce. And that framework certainly doesn't produce a reason to kick people off of benefit roles in order to sort of do any kind of welfare reform towards reducing the appearance of this patient population at a moment when it is exploding as a direct result of organized abandonment and fucking bad pandemic policies that have just let it rip and forced infection on people and forced long COVID on people. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, again, that's why we wanted to talk about this today, because again, you know, to sort of repeat myself from before, two things can be true at the same time. One is that the state abandonment that we've seen during COVID has been horrible. And it is a tragedy that so many people have become disabled by long COVID. And I say this as we're, as we mentioned from the very top, waltzing directly into another winter of this same abandonment. But then at the same time, too, is the way that long COVID is currently talked about overwhelmingly leans on this language of equating disability with death, equating disability with total loss of worth, equating disability with being a drain on productivity or a burden. Again, you know, in our book, uh, we talk about this framework generally as like 
disability or difference treated as this eugenic and debt burden. Both are just employed constantly in this mainstream language about long COVID, and we need a major course correction on that because if it continues, it potentially undermines our ability to truly value and support people with long COVID. Like we actually do need like this is not about, you know, oh careful, don't use ableist language. This is about like these framings forestall a lot of political imagination and activity. They mm-hmm. forestall action. And it's very important that instead of just hand wringing over lost productivity and spoiled identities, instead we maybe recognize this moment for what it is and really figure out how can we fucking change the political economy to actually support these people Mm -hmm. as well as like all you know all people all care for all people etc yeah anyway and i think we're gonna leave it there for today to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes Pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. Which, by the way, Health Communism should be back in stock on Verso by November 21st, which if you're listening to this when it comes out is this coming Monday. So if you've been waiting for it to come back in stock on Verso's website itself, uh, because then you get it directly from the publisher and they give you a free ebook copy along with your hardcover copy um that'll be back on monday yep and our reading group on uh health communism is starting on sunday the 20th in the death panel discord server there's a link to join the discord in the episode description as always patrons we will see you on monday in the patron feed for everyone else we will catch you next week and as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week If you want